Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. I look at my blog and I see how I've, str- I've tried to streamline it. Um, you know, things like always having the same size image. I used to write much longer blog posts um, than I do now, whereas now I, I, I try to keep them kind of short and to the point, and then once a week I like to get something kind of meaty that you can sit down and read. Hey, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to streamline content creation for a blog that's produced nearly 900 articles, how to use Instagram to promote the content that you create, and what should an artist focus on if they want to turn their passion into a business. Today, I'm joined by Jenny Hart from SublimeStitching.com. Sublime Stitching is a contemporary studio for hand embroidery and was started in 2001 and currently based out of Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, thanks. So tell us a bit more about what does it mean to, what does hand embroidery mean? Like what, what's the product that, that, or products that you sell? Well, um, I started designing uh, patterns for hand embroidery and kits and tools and textiles at a time when um, people really weren't working in hand embroidery anymore. And it was something that I got addicted to uh, as an artist. I started experimenting with it. And so, you know, this used to be such a mainstay of uh, five and dime stores was embroidery patterns. And through the 80s, it really kind of fell out of fashion and you really only had diehard cross stitchers that were um, that were still working. But what I do is uh, surface embroidery, which is kind of like what you'd see on tea towels or on jean jackets. Mm-hmm. And that had just kind of, um, there weren't really companies actively designing for uh, for hand embroidery anymore. So I saw a real need for it. Um, I thought there was a, a generation that was not taking it up and wasn't interested in it because they kind of equated it with the older aesthetic. And, uh, you know, I knew that you could do something new with it. You could make embroidery anything. It can always be contemporized. Uh, so in 2001, I launched Sublime Stitching and uh, we began, I began publishing uh, iron-on transfer patterns. They're templates that you put onto fabric that you can stitch along the lines. And, uh, and core to that is working with, uh, with artists. I started working and collaborating with a lot of artists whose work I really like that you might not otherwise see as uh, commercial uh, craft designs. So I really wanted to do something new with it, get people uh, excited about hand embroidery again because it was a newfound passion for me. And it's kind of like when you discover something for the first time, you kind of want to get everyone else into it. And that was really the, the impetus for Sublime Stitching. Very cool. So 2001, this was, uh, I guess, in an in internet age, is a very long time ago. This was probably before any, e- any easy e-commerce platforms came along. How were you selling the products? Was it online or were you selling offline as well? I was not selling offline to start. Um, it actually began uh, Sublime Stitching grew out of a blog. I started blogging in 1999. Uh, And then when I began working in embroidery, I started a blog. I mean, I think it was a blog for a month called Sublime Stitching, where I was just posting my my work in embroidery. Uh, But I... I hand-coded uh, my first website um, for e-commerce. I didn't, um, there wasn't really any out-of-the-box platforms at that time. Um, and I didn't know Dreamweaver. I wasn't familiar with it. And so I learned straight HTML and I built, uh, I built my first website that way. 
And I also ran it like that for the first six years, uh, like a crazy person. Um, but that was, and we also used um, Mal's E was, was my cart, uh, authorized.net. So it was all of these things that, you know, you're, I mean, I think this is still true today, but in a different, with much more uh, tools as I was just really trying to sew together a lot of disparate parts and make an e-commerce site. Mm-hmm. And was the intention always to start a business? Because you mentioned that it was a blog at first. Did you have the intention to build a business around that blog? I did. I, I'd had, you know, hand embroidery for me was kind of this um, back of my mind project I wanted to take up for a long time. Kind of like when you say, uh, you know, one day I'll learn Italian. For me, for many years, it had been one day I'll learn hand embroidery because I think it'd be really interesting for my artwork. And at the same time, I thought, you know, it'd be really really great if there was a company that made cool embroidery patterns, you know, that had updated themes. And so that I always kind of spun in my my head with, you know, I think people that are entrepreneurial minded kind of toss these ideas around in their head for a long time and say, oh, I always had this idea for business. So Sublime Stitching, before it had a name, was uh, an idea that I toyed with for a long time. And I had been researching on the side, um, manufacturing solutions and, um, but it all just, it didn't really come together uh, until 2001 um, when I, just from a confluence of different things where it, I was really ready to make it happen and make it an actual business. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that people weren't really working with hand embroidery anymore. Uh, did you feel like you had to convince a lot of people to try it out again? Because I think one of the the pros and cons of being in a market that either has gone away or is not popular yet is that you're one of the first people to move into it. You don't have any competition. But then on the other hand, it might mean that there's not a lot of uh, – there's no customers there either. Did you, Was it a difficult – issue for you at first? Did you have problems finding customers early on because it wasn't, you know, a trendy or popular, uh, popular, I guess, activity for people to do anymore? Well, I, I viewed, um, I viewed my customer as myself, essentially, where I was somebody who I had no interest in needlework. I didn't grow up sewing. I didn't like crafting. You know, to me, crafting was something kindergartners did. It wasn't, you know, I, I, considered myself a fine artist with a studio practice. Um, so knowing what changed my mind about hand embroidery and what got me excited about it, I knew would be my communication tools to other people who'd never thought about it and how I could put it in front of their eyes in a different way. And another really big aspect of that was I was working in hand embroidery as an artist. So I was creating work in hand embroidery. Uh, and a lot of the work was getting published as illustrations. It was being uh, exhibited. It was I was getting a lot of press and a lot of attention for my artwork at the time. And that was a big... Um, a lot of people would look at my work and say, oh, I'd never seen embroidery like that. I didn't know you could do that with it. I wish I could try that. And, you know, well, I have this company, Sublime Stitching, may I interest you in some patterns and teaching you how to stitch. So I had this kind of um, nice stepping off point with my work that had been out for about a year at that time. And I was getting that response so heavily from people that saw the work, which was not, you know, always typical. I find this really interesting when looking at fine art, your first instinct isn't always to say, oh, I want to make that painting. And that's something very different about hand embroidery is it's viewed as accessible and and something that 
it's both viewed as accessible and inaccessible. It's viewed as accessible in that they look at my work in the gallery and they go, oh, I know what that is. That's hand embroidery. Boy, I would love to do that. Look what, what a cool thing you can, you, you can do with it. I never thought of it that way. But then the reality is, I don't know how to embroider. I don't know anyone who knows how to embroider, and that's the best way to learn is to have someone teach you. Um, so Sublime Stitching was very much about getting people over that hurdle or that perceived hurdle. Two perceptions. One, that it's really hard to get started. It's not. It's very easy to start. And that you had to be stitching up teddy bears and bunnies. You didn't. Look at my work. Look at what I do with it. You can do something just as unique and just as creative. Mm, yeah, I think this is a, a issue or a problem that a lot of store owners run into where they do have to do some convincing because people have these preconceived notions about the product that they're selling or the activity surrounding that product. What were you doing exactly to help people get over this hurdle? Well, I think um, I, I agree with what you just said. I think if you've, you know, I didn't have just an end product for people to buy like a, a gift or a knickknack, which I think inherently can be much more difficult to sell. I had a story along with it. Um, what I did, my, my very first efforts um, came about and I think this applies for anyone, is, um, is just telling people in my community what I was doing. And I was very active in an online discussion forum at the time called uh, Glitter, and it was on a website called Get Crafty. And this was really a very... Um, um, this was kind of ground zero for the DIY movement at the time where a lot of people who were at the first Renegade Craft Fair were in these forums. A lot of people were doing work. We were sharing it, talking about it. Um, and it was a place where I could say, hey, I've been working on this company, Sublime Stitching. I'd really love to show you guys my patterns. You know, would you mind checking out my website? Get feedback, which I think is a great starting point for anyone with their business. Um, and then the other very real thing, which is going to sound super analog, um, was that I had a, um, I bust magazine hired me to do an illustration. I had actually reached out to them with my work and they said, yeah, we'd love to give you a job. And they ran a full page illustration. It was a hand embroidered portrait that I did for an article. And I said, uh, in lieu of payment, for my byline, will you please run my website, sublimestitching.com? And you don't even have to put my name, just put my website. Uh, and they did, they did. They actually ran my name too. But my byline was jennyhartsublimestitching.com. And that was my first um, actual eyes in front of people or eyes on my website and got a little bump of traffic. And it kind of, I just built on it from there. Mm. All these things that you're, you're saying, the the forums that you were going to, the blog you created, the 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 PR that you got by you know doing this work and then asking them to to essentially link back to you back to your site. These are all things that still are very valid marketing strategies today that are maybe even very much more popular than the, in more recent years. Is this still what you do today to to drive traffic and, and uh, new customers to your your business? Well, it's we're really looking at. At, that's changed a lot um, for me. I do still, um, it's a lot of, my business exists on a lot of word of mouth. I, I used to do a lot of print advertising. I used to do a lot of alternative print advertising and zines and um, like Punk Planet and Juxtapose and the Comics Journal and Bust. Um, and I think, I, I think that having first contact with your community, people that are other entrepreneurs or people who know your business and understand what you're trying to do with it well are a great first, first point. 
Um, and then just talking about it, you know, all, I was always talking about what I was working on and I always had a card on me. I was always telling people, you know, people thought, oh, that's kind of a quirky, fun thing. I'd like to know more about it. I always had promo cards on me. Um, we used to do promotional swaps with other web businesses through the forums. Uh, I actually used to organize them where we would swap promotional swag to put in our outgoing shipments. And mm-hmm. this was kind of a fun thing because then our customers would get, you know, maybe a one-inch button or a little bumper sticker that was from another business and it kind of felt like a, like a little goodie bag. And what was different is that social media didn't exist in the way that it does now. And so year by year, I'm always trying to f- understand uh, new ways of navigating it and having Sublime Stitching have a presence there. Because it's not always obvious at the beginning when, you know, Instagram was new, when Pinterest was new, I didn't have an understanding yet of how people were going to play with this and where our presence made sense. So I think um, actually now is the strongest that we're looking at that to kind of understand um, where our customers come from through those channels, uh, how they like to interact with me because I have a very, I like to maintain a fairly one-on-one relationship with my customers. I answer a lot of our emails and communicate directly with them. Um, But uh, a lot of that core stuff that you mentioned at the beginning or that I used to do, I still do. You know, I think our newsletter is our number one uh, way of communicating with people and gets more people on it if somebody shares it, drives sales. Um, so a lot, a lot of the real fundamentals just have stayed the same. Yeah, I think that, that's the comforting thing about marketing is that like you're saying, the like, fundamentals stay the same, the new the channels, new ones pop up all the time, like Instagram, for example, are, are popping up, but a lot of the techniques are and the foundations have always stayed the same. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that the business really got started with the blog, and I'm taking a look at your current blog now. Is it the same blog that you have hosted over at sublimestitching.com or is it on a separate website? No, it's the same. Um, when it first started, it was a Blogspot blog, um, and then I probably had that as a plug-in to my HTML site at the time. So it's been so long, I don't remember. But um, when we switched from Drupal to Shopify, we had all of the all of the blog posts migrated over. So my blog posts go back to 2003. Um, the photos are broken at the moment. If you go back far enough, there's, the photos aren't there. And we're trying to, to address that. But um, the entire, uh, the only part that's not there are the very first posts that I did in 2001. Um, but it's, <laughs> for better or for worse, all my blog entries are still on there. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking. It's amazing. You have nearly 900 articles, which is a ton of articles, ton of dedication. And of course, uh, it's it's great that you have that consistency over so many different years or over the, over the years. Now, what are you? How do you decide what kind of content you should be creating for the blog? And talk to us about how. Has it evolved over time from the beginning to to today? The type of content that you're creating. I, it has. And, you know, you said it's great having that consistency. And I, I look at my blog and I see how I've, str- I've tried to streamline it. Um, you know, things like always having the same size image. Um, I used to write much longer blog posts um, than I do now. Whereas now I, I, I try to keep them kind of short and to the point. And then once a week, I like to get something kind of meaty that you can sit down and read. Um, but, uh, 
it's always been kind of a, a mix of just personal interests, new product releases, um, tips and techniques that I think people would like, and also trying to understand where those things want to live. So, for example, uh, tutorials. I have a lot of embroidery tutorials, and I always like to announce them on the blog, but I used to wonder if I wanted that content to live on the blog or if I wanted it to have its own discrete page. Um, and now we've, you know, so a lot of those things where we kind of run a drill of, where, how are we going to announce this? Well, we're going to announce it on Instagram and it's going to direct them where? Well, let's have, let's send them to the blog. Okay. Is the full lesson going to be there? All of that. Um, I mean, that changes. Uh, I wouldn't say that we've come up with a, a perfect formula for things. I think we're, I'm trying to also, because it makes it easier for me, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel every time I sit down to, um, do a tutorial and figure out where it's going to live. Um, and we're, we're, actually retooling a lot of that right now. Um, and it does make it so much easier if you, I know it gets overwhelming. I know I get overwhelmed, but if you have a business and you're thinking about how you're going to promote it, or if you have content you're going to, to push, if you can t just take bite one piece off at a time and get that worked out, if you have a template that you can use, that you can create for yourself, that you know you can use again and again, and not agonize over being married to it, know that you can make changes if it's not working, mm -hmm. which you should, that helps cut down your work a lot. It makes it easier for you to return to it and do it again. Um, and uh, we've got a lot of those processes in place right now that we're trying to, we're con you're constantly refining it. You're just really constantly seeing how it went, looking at the feedback and the information, seeing if you feel like it was successful and then you either adjust or you say, okay, great. Now we're ready to, you know, let the, let the little machine run as it were. I, I like the two very important things that you mentioned here that I want to call out is that one is to have these processes, uh, but then also not be feel like you have to be married to it, not feel like you have to get the process right from the beginning, uh, because the last thing you want to do is not to have that kind of hesitation, that kind of analysis by, or paralysis by analysis because you can't move forward unless it's perfect. And then that kind of leads to just avoidance, right? You start avoiding the work, avoiding going through that process because you don't like it and because you're too married to that idea of getting it to be perfect. Uh, so other than with uh, the blog, what other kind of processes have helped you the most with running running the business that have lasted the test of time through through the years? Um, for me, it would be, and I've just changed it, but it would be a newsletter template. Um, I really sat down and worked out a newsletter template for myself a couple of years ago so that it wouldn't take four hours for me to do the newsletter. Um, and that, that helped tremendously. And it feels hard and frustrating at the time that you're doing it because you're trying to create a system that doesn't exist or a process that doesn't yet exist and you've got to craft it for yourself. Um, and the thing that I've learned is that that one frust frustrating day or that one afternoon where I just set everything aside and say, I'm going to do this is always worth it. Because even if I don't arrive at that point where I feel like, okay, I've perfected it, if I can just get it to the point where I'm like, I've moved the ball ahead, I can send this out. And a great, a great parameter for businesses, especially when you agonize over like, well, I want my brand to be represented, you know, perfectly this way. A great parameter is, will this embarrass me? <laughs> if it's not going to embarrass you, if you can live with it and it's going to help you move on to the next thing, then go ahead and put it out there. Um, and I think the biggest source of 
just tension for me when I'm working is trying to figure out where that line is. It's like, is the drawing really finished? Is the painting really finished? No, it needs one more brushstroke. And, you know, maybe it doesn't. Just get it out there. See, you'll see it with new eyes once it's out there too. And uh, you'll, you've got something to work from. And it, we also refer to it as the 20 mile march. Uh, refers to uh, uh, Arctic explorers where no matter what the conditions were, no matter how bad the blizzard was, you had to do your 20 miles every day. If you didn't, if you took a day off, you weren't going to make it to the end. <laughs> you, you couldn't afford to, to stop. You just had to do that one segment every day. And so that's kind of the attitude I try and keep with, with work like that. So, so what do you do on the days where you just don't feel like doing it? Do you just, how do you get yourself going so that, you know, like you're saying, you push through it even if you don't like doing it, but are there tips that or tricks that you that work for you to get yourself to do things that you don't want to do or do things when you don't feel motivated to do them? Uh, there's two things I do. One is if I truly don't feel like working, if I really, really just don't feel like working, I if I can, I'll take the day off or I'll take the afternoon off. And the reason why is because if I don't want to work and I'm just feeling frustrated, I'm not going to be productive and I'm not going to really get the work done. Um, and I also won't have given myself the break that mm. I obviously needed. Um, so I always try to avoid inhabiting the space of, well, I didn't really have a work day and I didn't really have a day off. It's either I am off or I'm working. Um, but one of a uh, trick that I use on, I play on myself, uh, is if I am having to focus on a task that I don't really want to do, I'll hang a carrot out for myself by saying, okay, well, if you can get this done, then you can move on to doing this. Something that I really am excited to start, a project I want to start. And then I'll just fly through that thing I didn't really want to do. And now I'm on to that fun project I wanted to, to get started. Awesome. So I want to go back to the blog real quick. Uh, you mentioned that there were lots of different kind of types of content that you were creating. Tutorials, uh, you might write about personal interests or personal maybe products that you are into or you might write about new products that you're launching on the, the store. Do you find that the different kinds of content that you're putting together do different things for your business? I do. I find that um, we get a lot more engagement when, when they're more personal blog posts. Um, I posted a fairly personal uh, anecdote blog post uh, when Carrie Fisher passed away that your listeners might find interesting to read. Um, and that got a big response. Uh, and other things that are related to kind of behind the scenes. Uh, I went to Paris uh, last December and I visited uh, two companies there. One of them is a silk manufacturing, a silk thread manufacturing company that's been in business since 1820. And it's run by the founder's granddaughter. And so having little glimpses of that, um, people, I love seeing that. Um, I love knowing the the story behind the products. So we get a lot of response to to that. Um, I use the blog quite a bit just for Anytime an event or an announcement happens and that doesn't necessarily generate comments, but it's not really designed to. Um, but we have tutorials. Tutorials and the educational content is a, is a main draw for my website, is one of the things that we're learning. It always has been. Um, it goes hand in hand with my business. I couldn't really offer and do what I do if I wasn't at the same time teaching people how to do hand embroidery. Um, which I'm passionate about and I want to be doing anyway, but it wouldn't, um, 
I'd kind of had a pro- I would have a product kind of hanging out there in the air without a, a how-to manual if I didn't have that. And so I get a lot of people coming to the website, not necessarily because they've heard of Sublime Stitching or they're looking for it, although there's that there is that aspect, but a lot of it comes to us just because people want to learn how to do a French knot or they uh, want to learn how to do a satin stitch and it brings them, it brings them to me. Mm-hmm. And one other thing I noticed about your blog is lots of photos, lots of different looking photos too. I can't imagine that you've been able to streamline all of this too, right? Because it seems like it's all, I don't, at least I don't recognize a template, any of these. How have you been able to make that process of creating photos for your, your blog easier? Uh, one thing I do is I have a little frame that goes around all of my photos. Um, when I originally was blogging, I would just put any photo up. It wouldn't have, I didn't like the way watermarks looked, um, but I did feel that I needed to have a copyright notice with my images because they were being used. Um, people would, you know, just repost them and there would be no link back. And um, so one of the things that I did was I started using these little frames and what they look like is they look like an old, uh, kind of an old crinkle cut Polaroid printed mm-hmm. edge. And then that gives me this nice white border and I just have my copyright notice and my company because I have noticed that people will use these images on their own blogs and I don't mind it because it's got my, you know, found via Sublime Stitching uh, and the credit is there. So that's, that's always nice. Um, but for the actual photography, uh, I mean, having an iPhone is great because 12 years ago I didn't have that and I had a digital camera. Um, and recently we just set up a product photo studio which I've never had before, which is a blessing. It's so great to have. I have a table with seamless and lights set up, whereas in the past I've always been, um, you know, chasing sunlight around with a piece of white foam core trying to get the best image that I can. And I think that that's something that a lot of people can relate to. But recently we set up a really good... Um, a good little little studio. So it's it lives where it's at. We can just step in, photograph things. It cuts down on the time of cleaning up the image in Photoshop. And um, and actually, when you call, that's what I was doing, was doing project, product photos for a new line we're releasing. Well, well in, in, that, in that case, this is fresh on your mind. I think the product photo studio is a great thing to have because you don't have to constantly have it set it up, like you're saying, chasing the natural light around to get a good photo. Uh, what are some key pieces of equipment if someone else out there wants to create something like this so that they can do the same as you be able to churn out essentially photos for their blog or just uh, content in general? Well, I have, I don't know my what type of camera I have off the top of my head, which is embarrassing, um, but I can tell you when we get off uh, of this, I can give you that information. Sure. Um, I have a very, it's very modest. You can get seamless paper off uh, Amazon or most photo studio supply stores. I'm in LA too, so um, we know photographers. And actually what I did was uh, I hired a friend who is a professional photographer and I said, will you help me set up my studio? I'm going to show you how I need to photograph everything. I want you to set up my camera. Uh, We have two lights, um, a table, seamless paper, blackout. um, You know, it can be a luxury of space too. We have an extra room where we're able to set this up and not have to break it down at all. But it doesn't have to take up a lot of room, at least not for me. My products are very small. Um, And uh, so, I mean, that was key for me was I, I started asking friends and say, do you know somebody who could do this? And he got, and I said, get me to where my camera set up so that I can take the photos and I won't have to readjust my white balance every time um, and help me adjust the lights and worked great. 
Awesome. Now, when you I want to go back to 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 the blogging real quick. Uh, when you are creating this this content, it's it's great to put all this effort into and everything. Nine hundred articles later, how do you promote this this? Uh, how do you get the most value out of the the work that you put into to creating it? Well, I don't I don't know that I am getting the most value out of it right now. But I you know I I post to Twitter. Um, I'll post it on Facebook. Um, Pinterest is one that's evaded me for a long time. When Pinterest first came out, I really didn't quite, this was what I was saying earlier, where it didn't yet, it hadn't yet been molded by how people were using it themselves. And it seemed to me that it was really strictly for posting other people's work to say, this is what inspires me. This is my Mm -hmm. personal bulletin board. And it wasn't really okay to post your own work or, you know, I was looking for a way to say, all right, well, I'd like to put my work in front of other people and let them see the embroidery. And so it's taken a long time of just seeing how people use Pinterest for me to understand where Sublime Stitching fits in with that. Instagram, I really, really like using Instagram. I actually have four Instagram accounts. Um, so I will post things there. That drives a lot uh, of blog interest. And again, through my newsletter, uh, probably the biggest traffic to my blog comes from when I say, hey, there's something on the blog um, that you might want to check out. And I do it through the newsletter. Mm, so when you do uh, post to Instagram, are you doing things like updating your bio so people can easily click over to that blog article? Or do they just or do you just tell them to type type in the, the blog URL themselves? I'm really trying to be vigilant about updating the URL in the bio so that when people go to the bio, they can go directly to that because the mobile version of my website right now is a little, up, a little outdated and we're actually waiting on a new version of the website this week. Um, so I really don't want to send people there hunting around, especially the blog can be kind of hard to, hard to spot. So I, uh, you know, and actually we recently retooled the bios a couple of times just, just for clarity and also because I added a new Instagram account and I wanted it to be reflected there. So, you know, I use the three Instagram accounts I have also to kind of talk to one another and say, hey, this is going on over there and this is going on over there. Um, to explain, one is my personal account, one is for the business Sublime Stitching, and the other one is called, it's just at Embroidery on Instagram, and it's all um, its its all the work that people are doing, past and present, and hand embroidery that I think is really exciting and really inspiring. It's just embroidery eye candy. And I used to post it on Sublime Stitching, but I always kind of felt conflicted of... Um, I felt I felt like I could have a whole account just devoted to that, and I wanted to be able to separate the two. So, so I'm always kind of like in a social media swirl. Um, you know, in the past, it's always been okay. Now I'm going to run over here, and I'm going to post it there. And now I'm going to run over to Facebook, and I'm going to post it there. And now I'm going to type up. So, and now we're really trying to be smart about it, not just throw a bunch of marbles out and see what happens, but do it one at a time and see what the response is and gauge it see if we can tweak it and improve it um, before we go on to the next thing because we hadn't really done that in the past. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a good point because a lot of times when a lot of times people will take the promotion route of just like spray and pray, right? Put it all out there, kind of turn on a fire hose and then hopefully someone catches it at, at some point. But you want to take a much like a smarter approach to, to doing it. Can, can you talk a little bit more about this and how do you determine where, and especially when you have these three Instagram accounts, how do you determine what you should be posting or what you should be, what you should be promoting where? I am Instagram. I think some social media outlets for come naturally to people like you just fit in and you get how it works and you, 
you don't have to figure out what you're going to post. And Instagram kind of feels that way to, to me. Um, you know, <laughs> the spray and pray is kind of funny. Um, I think that that's actually a decent approach when you're first starting. I mean, that's how I was at the beginning. It was just like, blah, blah, everybody's sublime stitching everything all the time. Um, but after a while, I think you... And it's hard when you're running a business. You don't have the time. You don't necessarily have the gauges on the dashboard to read all that information. Um, and you know, Sublime Stitching is me, uh, my partner, and uh, one full-time employee. And my partner, who's my fiancé, um, he has his own business. And it's really only been in the last year that he has actually started working very in a focused way on my business with me. And a lot of what is he's doing is taking in the information through Google Analytics, which, you know, for me, that's the kind of thing where, you know, you're an octopus when you have a small business, you're doing so many different things. And that was just kind of the point where I said, I give, I can't, I can't even jump into that ocean of information. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to parse it out. And he's very, very good at that. And so it's been really eye-opening and interesting to me to look at that information. And we're just at the point where we're starting to kind of understand um, how we can, how we might use it. Um, like I said earlier, the thing that we see is that we have different conversion rates. I mean, I think this, this is true for any business, but you just may not be, have the information to point it out to yourself. Um, that our conversion rate depends on how people came to the website. So we have customers that come to us organically, and then we have customers that come to us who were looking for a tutorial. So a lot of times, for example, you'll have someone who they discover us and their entry point is the how-to section, and they don't buy anything, but they leave with a free pattern. And they may do this again and again and again and again, and then three years later, they'll place a $200 order. And for my website, that's a big order because most of the products are, you know, $20 or less. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you have a different metric for somebody who came organically, landed on the first page. So all of that we're trying to look at and, and understand. Um, and it's, a, it's an inexact science. And it's been really interesting having an online business for so long of just how there weren't these tools there before you were kind of like feeling around in the dark and trying to understand where it came from. And now you can actually see it. Um, so I think it's, it's really crucial that you you really need to look at it to understand. Um, because it's, I know for some people it's kind of scary. I don't know why that is where it's like, I don't know. I don't actually want to look at the numbers. I don't want to know. Um, you know, maybe with your bookkeeping or whatever, but the, it's so, I find it just the opposite. I find it so reassuring once I know what those numbers are, because then you can stop putting your energy into things that aren't working. Um, you know, you'll, oh, I don't have to do 10 Instagram posts today because it's actually not converting any, any into any sales. Whereas I haven't been on Pinterest in eight months and that's where, you know, all of these sales are coming from. Now, what if it's it's working, but not as well as other channels? Because, you know, in, in your example where the conversion rates 
vary depending on how they enter your site. Someone might come along and look at the tutorials first, and then you have to wait three years. You know, maybe that's an exaggeration, but anyway, you have, to, you have to wait a while before they ever convert, ever buying from you, versus someone that maybe comes organically or does some kind of Google search and finds your your site, and then within that first visit, they buy something. Does that mean that you should stop trying to get those people that have been that take three years to buy and focus more on the people that will buy immediately? How do you determine what to do with that information? Hmm. I I don't think so. I mean, I don't think you should. You should. I think that. I mean, for us, then we have things that we're trying, little tweaks. Um, and I, you know, to be honest, I don't really have an answer for that. I mean, I would say I, you don't want to give up on it. You want to see, um, talk about different different strategies or figure out how um, what people are responding to. On that, you know, like we can look and see where we had a day where we had a peak. And maybe that was a day that I um, released a tutorial or on, on Pinterest and I hadn't done anything on there for three months. And it generated this. Well, let's do that again. Let's see if that's working. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like the hitting the nail on the head. Once you find the nail, hit the head again. Um, I, it, it's hard. I mean, I think small businesses have the advantage of being nimble and quick and you can change. And if you're really excited about it and you're paying attention or if you have somebody that likes to pay attention in that way, it's it's valuable. But I don't know that I have any more specific advice that I could give mm-hmm. um, other than I don't think it should be ignored. I don't, I think, um, but I do think you want to nurture and pay attention to the ones that have a, a, a dynamic response to what you're doing that you can see and you can see it pretty quickly. It doesn't have, you don't have to have a, like you said, you know, a, a year or two years, you know, we can see results in a couple of weeks if we just through changes we make. Um, so if you have the stomach for it, you know, if you can, it's really worth it. It's, uh, think, um, take, Back to the idea of like the 20 mile march, you know, if you can say in the morning I'm going to work on social media or in the morning I'm going to spend an hour looking at my Google Analytics, even if I don't know where to start, even if I just am going to understand one thing about it, it's, it, it'll, it'll really help you move forward. Um, so I try to kind of segment my days that way a little bit so I don't feel like I'm just stepping into this blizzard of to-dos at each time. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like teaching and education is a big uh, proponent of your content strategy and a great way for you to bring in new customers. Now, after being in business for so long, having so much content, do you ever feel like you've run out of things to teach? Oh, no. <laughs> not with <laughs> not with hand embroidery. I mean, hand embroidery is a very, very, very um, deep subject. And that's one of the reasons why it's so interesting to me is that it is, um, it's something that you can dip your toes in and enjoy uh, as a, just from a very superficial level and just, or you can go really deep on it as a subject. Um, and there's endless ways of playing with it and innovating it and designing product for it. So, so no, I feel just the opposite. Um, I, there's, I feel like I can't believe I've gotten so little content out. Um, and also from having content from reaching back so far as I look back at things and I see maybe a blog post or a tutorial or a technique and I've learned so much from that point. There are things, ways I would have maybe approached it differently or there's new information. So I kind of like to revisit that too and say, remember years ago I taught you how to do this? Well, here's another thing I've learned alongside it or since then. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think that has a lot of um, 
it's a big part of why I've been doing this so long is it's a personal passion and interest of mine. And it's one that is just, it's such a deep well of information and ideas that um, it just doesn't, it just, it feels like it has room for endless experimentation. Mm-hmm. And one other interesting thing that you you mentioned to me was that not only are you educating the the actual customer, the people that are visiting your site, you also want to help your customers teach their friends hand embroidery. Can you say? Can you speak a little bit more about this? Oh yeah, we're real. I'm really excited about this. Um, so February is National Embroidery Month, and I've known this for a long time. And every year, people you know go, "Hey, it's February. It's National Embroidery Month. Yay!" And this year, we thought. Wouldn't it be cool if we facilitated people um, teaching each other? And instead of just saying, hey, it's National Embroidery Month, let's actually celebrate it in a meaningful, active way by encouraging people to celebrate it and acknowledge it by teaching each other. Because that's the best way to learn hand embroidery. It's a really nice thing to do. Um, and we, so we set up, we did a blog post where we said, let's make it National Teach Embroidery Month. We want you to participate with us. If you will write us, we will send you a little care package. We'll send you some patterns and some floss and some instruction sheets. We'll do it for free. All you have to do is give us your address and you, your end of the deal is you have to tell us who you're going to teach and you have to send us photos and you have to tell us about the jokes you told and you have to <laughs> tell us about the snacks you ate. And uh, we have sent out, since we announced almost 200 packets uh, and people are already getting together with their friends and sending us photos and um, and it's wonderful. I love it. It, it. It's it's so enjoyable for me, and that's a big buoying aspect of my business. Is that I really love the feedback that I get from the the people that are are, are working with their hands, that are working with the patterns, getting together with their friends, um, learning a new skill. It's great. I, it's 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 really really fun. And then from the from the business angle, what a great way to encourage referrals and word of mouth, right? Because now you are getting these people to not only enjoy your products, enjoy the process, enjoy the the art with their friends, but now they're inter- you're, they're spending how, how maybe many hours learning about this product that you essentially sell to. So I think that's a great way to not only spread that 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 passion, spread what you're passionate about, but then also attract essentially new customers to 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 learn more about your products and your brand. Um, well, I hope I hope so. And I want, um, you know, my dream when I started Sublime Stitching was that I could create a company and a brand that would endure, that people would think of affectionately, <laughs> that they would associate it with something that they um, that they have good feelings about, that they have shared with friends, that they've made gifts that they've given for people, or that they had a comforting activity when. Uh, you know, things were stressful, um, or that they had something now in their home or on their clothing that they embroidered and personalized and they felt like they did it and that we, uh, we helped them make that happen. Um, so that's, that is, that's really important to me and it's, it, it is, and it's been, it's, and it's effective. It's, um, sincerity is effective. It's, it's because mm-hmm. I'm really here. I'm really wanting this out there and I really love it when it comes back. Right, definitely. Now I want to talk a little bit about licensing because you you you're sitting in a very unique position that I don't think I've had many other guests on the podcast uh, be in, which is that you have worked on both sides of the table, buying licenses and also uh, distributing or selling licenses. Can you say a little bit more about this? Like what 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 have you what kind of licenses have you worked with? 
Well, I have, um, I, I've licensed my work as an artist, and I also license work from artists for, uh, for Sublime Stitching. So what that means is that I am an artist who works with other artists, and I try to work in terms that, one, they make sense for my business, but I also like to treat them the way that I want to be treated when I'm on that side. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what the concerns are. Um, you know, whenever you put your artwork in somebody else's hands and they're like, great, I'm going to make this product with it. You're like, oh, I hope it looks okay. I hope he won't embarrass me. Right. So I have a lot of those things in place when I work with artists of, I want them to know that, um, I'm working with them because I'm excited to, I'm working with them because I want to promote their work. I'm not going to be re- I don't release patterns and, you know, it's some nameless thing. It's, branded under their name. It's the artist series. All the patterns are named by the artist who did them. Um, and, uh, and I show them what we're going to do uh, before it goes to production, which most companies won't do that, which I actually understand why, because you don't want the artist at that point to go, oh, this isn't, I want to, you know, go back into the kitchen. Um, but it's been, it's a learning experience. Um, I work with Artists that, um, I work with artists that are very established, that have a lot of experience with licensing. I also work with discovery artists who maybe have never licensed something before. Um, and we kind of walk through it together and see what makes sense. Um, and it's a process that I always enjoy because I'm so excited to work with these artists because I'm a fan. Um, I'm a fan of their work. I, I want to do this kind of new thing where it's like, hey, let's, let's make embroidery patterns out of your illustrations. Um, I like... Uh, I think it's exciting. I hope that it's exciting for them to see their work get translated into hand embroidery and also for stitchers who are fans of their work or maybe new to their work have this brand new platform to work with and embroider. Um, so that's been, that's been kind of a renewed focus because from the beginning I drew all the patterns myself. Um, and it wasn't until 2006 that we had our first artist, which was Kurt Halsey. Um, and then we went on and we have art, but we have Daniel Johnston, Carson Ellis, who just won the, uh, the Caldecott Award for her children's book. Um, Tara McPherson, the artist Coop, uh, Emily Winfield, Martin, Kyler Martz. Uh, we're right now working with French artist Natalie Leté, which I'm very excited about. Um, and, uh, and that's really been kind of a... Um, an even heavier focus now on doing other artists' work for the patterns because I can produce much more that way. Um, I doesn't. It, it never was my intention for Sublime Stitching to just be my work, um, but it was out of necessity for a long time. Um, but I still design all the product, um, develop all of it, um, do all the packaging. Uh, we work with one person to do assembly offsite. Uh, but it's uh, it's 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 a lot of different things. I'm kind of rambling. I've kind of forgotten your original question. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think uh, another question I want to ask you is about uh, the the benefits of going the licensing route. What why choose to to license versus like is the alternative just to to create it the 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 art yourself or what's the alternative to to licensing? I guess I'm. What would be the alternative to licensing? I mean, the all me producing the patterns is you know, was from day one. That was how, how we started. The reason why I licensed though, um, I mean, I think the simple answer for most companies, they license because they need, they need quick content. They need, um, the creative content is the hardest. They, they're manufacturers, they have the factory, they have the sales and distribution, but they don't have the creative content. Mm-hmm. Um, so you either have 
for a company like mine, um, you know, you have in-house designers or in-house artists. Uh, I'm not that size. I and really, I want it to be more visible who's doing the work than that. Um, so for me, licensing um, is a way to use existing work because I will use work that's existing from artists or sometimes we will commission them to do something exclusive. Um, and then we just have something a little more unique. So it's not, you know, there's licensing is a big world because also we're not talking about the scenario where let's say I'm licensing a syndicated cartoon like Peanuts, for example. Um, that's a whole other, that's a whole other scenario. Um, but I think, I don't know. I don't really know. I don't have a very articulate answer for this, so you'll probably cut this section. <laughs> no, 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 I won't because I think the answer you gave makes sense, which is that you, if you, if you need to get to, to the market faster or you don't have the means or time to, to create that creative content, like you're saying, a licensing, I think, is a very valid route for people to take. Uh, now, when you do make that decision to go down that route of licensing, how do you find one that fits with your business, your purposes, your brand? Like what's your process for identifying an artist to, to license from? Well, for me, I, I, one, I, I have to like their work and be excited about it. Um, I have to see a path for it to be translated into hand embroidery. So usually that means it works really well with a lot of comic artists um, uh, who have really do really great line work. Um, they have to want to do it. Um, for people who are seeking licensing or seeking collaborations with one other with other artists, at whatever level, one of the things that I have learned that is absolutely crucial is they have to want to do it. Uh, I have wonderful artists that we've worked with, um, and I have people that I've approached that I've asked, and they, you know they're just for whatever reason and that's fine they're just not interested or they just won't communicate and it's taken and I would and I would really pursue them because I'd be so crazy about their work and I would just think it'd be so wonderful and I've learned kind of the hard way that if they they if they're not excited about doing it it's you just have to move on to the next thing um and so for people who are looking to collaborate or to license creative work, one of the things that I did recently was I went to, um, I went to a convention, an illustrator's convention, and walked the floor. And then uh, after I'd kind of gotten the lay of the land and saw everyone and had my picks of people that I wanted to approach, I went to them one by one and I gave them my card and I said, hey – I don't know if you're familiar with Sublime Stitching, but my name's Jenny Hart and I make embroidery patterns. I love your work. Um, I'd love to, I, if you'd be interested in making your work into embroidery patterns or collaborating with, with us, contact me. And I gave them my card and keep it really short. You know, like, hi, how are you doing? This is something you'd be into, contact me. But that was kind of the key thing was me asking them to contact me. Um, and, you know, and some of them, whatever, no big deal. Some people be like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm dying to do this. And I only heard out of six people that I approached, um, it was kind of the last day, so I was going quicker. I would have approached more. Uh, one contacted me and, uh, and she's the one we're working with. Um, so I think, so this is also becoming advice for artists also is that, um, you know, there are companies that want to work with you and they want to license your work. Um, and you just have to make yourself, you have to put yourself out there or make yourself 
as easy to work with as possible um, because I make decisions all the time where I go, I, you know, it's not a vote of no confidence. I love your work, but if you're not going to answer my emails, I have to move on to the next thing. Um, and, th- and that's hard because you just learn that where your time is best spent and move on to the, move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And when you do set up these licensing deals, what, what goes into that? What are some key terms or key uh, stipulations that you need to make sure you get right or pay a lot of attention to when setting up a licensing deal from both sides? I have a template that I send to my artists after they've said that they're interested that um, in plain English says, okay, I have a contract, but these are the main points. Um, And one of the points that we request um, from our artists is that uh, we ask for their work to be exclusive to us just for embroidery patterns. In other words, they can provide us with a pre-existing artwork. They can, they still own the rights to it. They can go on to develop other projects with it, but we only ask for exclusivity as embroidery patterns. We also ask um, very often for exclusivity for any embroidery patterns, that we be their only embroidery pattern publisher. So that's an example of something that I, that we ask for. Um, But we have a standard, you know, we outline our terms and conditions. I mean, our, our, the term of the agreement. Um, It's, uh, you know, I've tinkered with my contract over the years to change certain things. We outline um, what the artwork will be that we're going to use, what the deliverables are, when they need to deliver it to us. And uh, we kind of do, we started doing collections where we're not just doing one sheet of patterns, but we're doing a tool case, a sheet of patterns, um, a hoop flare, which a hoop flare is a little magnetic needle minder. So we have a little collection of their work. And then we have a metric that we use that is a calculation based on, um, that takes into consideration our manufacturing costs, um, what we're going to net after retail, what we're going to net after wholesale, and what we'll net after distributor. So, um, you know, this has helped me as a licensing artist. You know, anytime somebody says, I want to license your, your artwork, you're like, of course you do, because I'm worth a million dollars. And then, you know, you get these little tiny royalty checks. But... Being on the other side of it, when I understand how much money goes into the manufacturing that we have to invest up front and that we have margins that get skinnier and skinnier when we're working with distributors who maybe want 60% off retail, that really that's where we have to look at that that net number. Um, the other thing that I like to do is, which is important to me, is I like to pay my artists a flat rate up front. Uh, we don't pay royalties based on sales. We pay a royalty um, based on the total quantity that we manufacture. So then it's up to me to sell it. Uh, I like that because I like the artists to feel like they've been paid and that they're not getting a check every quarter for $12 and we just don't have the manpower to track that anyway, which was me. Um, and a lot of artists have been really, really wonderful. Um, and, you know, we, we, we work this out. I don't ever try to shoehorn anybody into doing anything. I want them to be excited about it. I want them to um, think it's a special thing, um, know that we're doing it together, that it's because I truly love their work, um, that I'm going to pay them as fairly and as reasonably as I can, and, um, and that they have an agreement that they feel they understand and that nothing has been is nothing is hieroglyphics because I know that, you know, when I enter a deal or sign a contract, I just want to understand what I'm, I'm agreeing to. And I want to understand what they want. I want to deliver what they want. So I try and do that when I'm, 
I'm working with them. I feel like I, I know I know what they're thinking. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's definitely valuable that you have experience from both sides. Uh, now, for the artists out there, the listeners out there that are artists that don't have a business yet uh, and, and don't even know what they want to do exactly, but they do want to turn their passion into a business, what do you think should be their first step? Like, what should they be focused on, let's say, in the next month to make that you know, first step in, in that march, like you were saying, towards towards their goal? Well, you have to have a clear picture of what your business will be. And it has to be so clear to you that you, um, you, you can define it and you can identify who else may be doing it or what the closest thing to that is. Um, because that is the way that you're going to understand how you can mold yours to be unique if there's a need for it or if there's not a need for it, if there's competition that you can live with or not live with, and if it's realistic to do. Um, I think, uh, and this is kind of maybe an old analogy, but long, long time ago, I can't believe I just said that, long, long time Mm -hmm. ago, when we were talking all the time at Renegade Craft Fairs about, you know, I want to open an Etsy shop and I want to quit my day job. I used to say, when I would give talks, I'd say, well, you may love making earrings. Do you love making 200 earrings? Is your business scalable? That's a, that's a big one. Um, how do you see it growing? Do you have a plan for growing it? Do you like making plans? Because you, you have to. <laughs> um, you know, are you comfortable with risk? I think that's a big one that people don't think about is um, how much, um, how much, you know, you got to be okay with it not working out. You got to be okay with a lot of stuff not working out again and again and again. And if you can stomach that, um, and if you can take it not as, well, that didn't work, it's time to give up, or if you can power past it and either move on to something else or if you can learn from it. Um, you know, Sublime Stitching has been around this long because, um, one, I love doing it, but I've always been willing to uh, get past the things that weren't working. And, and that can be hard for people to do, especially if you've spent a long time developing something, uh, worked on it, just because you've spent a year developing something, if you have reached a point where you've determined it is not going to work, it's not going to be worth it, or, or, or for whatever reason, you've just, it's, just, it's no longer a good idea, that doesn't mean you have to put push forward with it. I think a lot of, I think a mistake some businesses make is that they'll do that. They'll say, hey, we got to do this because we spent a year working on it. That's a risk. And you may just need to take it as a loss and move on to the next thing that's going to be better. And people that work alongside you, that can be very frustrating. They can not understand that. I've had people that have, that have worked for me where at one point I had, I think, three people on staff, which was the largest I ever had. Um, and I know that, that they would feel that frustration. It's frustrating to me when I'm in that point when it's somebody else's decision and you're like, I've been working on this for six months. It's like, yeah, we're scrapping it. But I think that's a very powerful um, thing to be comfortable with, with within your own business. Yeah, that's amazing advice. So thanks so much for your time, Jenny. So sublimestitching.com is the website. Where do you want to see the company be or where do you want to see your brand be this time next year? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> Um, oh, I'd really like to have, um, I've always been interested in partnering with, uh, this is the entrepreneur's dream is you want to partner with a company that has greater resources than you do, um, that recognizes what it is you're trying to do and helps you amplify it. That is the, 
pie in the sky ideal. So that would be nice. Um, and we have companies that we've, you know, we're interested in and that or we're are interested in us and we talk about, but that never looks like what you think it's it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. And I always end up going back going, ah, I'm self-employed for a reason. I, I want to be my own boss and I want to. So it's hard because um, I think the dream from the the start, you learn so much that you go, oh, the dream's not what you thought it was. Not that that's bad. It's just different. Um so I actually still have as hard of a time answering that question now as I would have 15, 16 years ago. The truth is, I just want to embroider all day long. <laughs> that's, that's, so something, something a year from now that would give me more time to focus on my personal, my studio work and embroider would, would, be, would be wonderful. Awesome. I love it. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time again, Jenny. Appreciate it. I hope it was helpful to your listeners. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store for the next Shopify Masters episode. We also targeted um, how competition or, you know, we targeted some retail stores like Bye Bye Baby. We targeted some people uh, looking for car seats. So there was a lot of shots in the dark. Um, A lot of them didn't bring the result we were expecting. But fortunately enough, uh, a few of them did brought back uh, some some. Um, like major leads and, 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 and sales. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.